Good morning. Please uh, open your Bibles now to the 25th chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our journey and we're getting close to the end of the book. Uh, there is no 29th chapter of the book of Acts. I suppose people say that's what's happening now. It's been happening for a long time though. But as you turn to chapter 25, our reading will begin in verses 13 to 27. And before I read, let me remind you what the subtext is of the last several chapters of the book of Acts. It's really about God's providential work in bringing the Apostle Paul from where he is in Caesarea ultimately to Rome. And so Luke is not only a historian... But Luke is a theologian, and he's showing us that Paul will, because Jesus appears to Paul in a vision, telling him that he will testify of him in Rome. And in so doing, he shows us through the various texts and the cases and trials that we've been through that this is the only way Paul could have ever ended up there. And yet, it is not a straight line. It's filled with unexpected turns and twists, much like our lives. And so we're going to look at that today as we consider God's Word, uh, beginning in Acts 25, verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, that is, Festus's predecessor. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face, and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. 
But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that as we take these moments before us to consider this text, we do pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwells those who believe. We pray that you would open up our eyes to see the glory and beauty of the truth and that our hearts would be drawn to Jesus and that we would see him and him only as we sit under the ministry of the word today and we pray that you would bring transformation about in us, that we are always in need of changing, we're always in need of beginning again, we're always in need of repentance and faith. So as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, let us continue to walk in him. And this we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here we have a, a true politician. His name is Festus. And Festus is between a rock and a hard place. He's in a catch-22, which politicians often can find themselves in because of the nature of their profession, I suppose. Um, I once heard a joke uh, presented this way. Somebody said, what's two plus two? So they ask a mathematician, and the mathematician said, well, that's obvious. There's no debate. Two plus two is four. Then they ask a philosopher, and a, a philosopher said, well, let me ask you a few questions about the nature of what you mean by two plus two. Are you asking me that question ontologically or axiology, or are you asking me this question in terms of phenomenology, or, you know, it could be four, but maybe not, sometimes not in every case, and he qualified it to death. They ask a politician what two plus two was, and the politician says, what would you like it to be? <laughs> what would you like it to be? And so that's Festus. Festus is in a real dilemma here, and that's why he's so excited about King Agrippa and his sister and incestuous wife. The, the question, these are, these are some pretty rough people. Festus, not too bad. But Agrippa and Bernice, I'll tell you more about them later. It'll make your hair curl. Or if it's curly, it'll make it straighten. <laughs> so the transition to Paul's final defense speech focuses on two addresses by Festus. He has a private conversation with King Agrippa and uh, Bernice and a second that is open to public hearing and uh, in which the king would hear the no notorious prisoner Paul. The governor's purpose in both of these settings was to enhance his reputation as a competent and loyal official of the empire. He's spinning everything. 
He's spinning everything to make himself look good because he's really a validator. You know what a validator is? That's people who try to present themselves in a way that gets you to validate them and raise their cachet of importance. The sad thing is, Christians do that too, don't we? We seek validation for our spirituality. We seek validation for how well we do our calling and our work. Nothing worse than to get in, into a room full of preachers. And I can say that because I is one and I have been around them. And so validation starts happening. Well, where's your church? And you tell them, and, oh, Las Vegas, that must be challenging. Well, how many people do you have in your church? How many elders do you have? What's your budget? They all want to know what your markers of success are, and you feel like you have to validate yourselves. And it's hard to say, well, it's not my church, it's Jesus' church, and let's just leave it at that. And if you say that, then they think, he's really doing bad. He's on his way out. <laughs> but think of the ways we try to validate ourselves as Christians. We try to prove our own righteousness by putting a positive spin on our lives and and in reality we're weak we're struggling uh, we're seeking God's grace and mercy daily we're finding ourselves repenting constantly and and yet the temptation and I do it too is to validate ourselves and that's exactly what Festus is doing here as the politician though he's much better than Felix, his predecessor, he was no less politically driven by self-interest who could skillfully put a positive spin on his actions. Luke's purpose for recording the governor's remarks was quite different. The verdict that Festus had sidestepped earlier, he now pronounces first in private, then in public, none of the charges brought by Paul's accusers warranted the death penalty that they demanded and the gospel is not subversive of civil order even when a judicial system is a confusing mixture of due process political pressure and corruption as Rome's was by the way God is in control all of the time whoever wherever whenever you are he is in control. Count on that. I'll show you more about that in a moment. And so they have a private conversation. Think about Herod Agrippa. He had become king at age 17 when his father died. He technically only ruled a pretty small territory between Lebanon and anti-Lebanon, while the imperial governor had the actual power over Judea. Yet, Agrippa was the symbolic head of the Jewish nation, and the emperor Claudius had given him the administration over the temple and the power to appoint high priest. At the time of this event, Agrippa and his sister Bernice have come to pay respects to the new governor. So he was a powerful person as far as Judea is concerned, where the Jews were, where Festus was having some conflict. And so Festus wants to pick his pocket and figure out how to get out of this dilemma he's in. And that's what he's charged up about. 
So Festus summarizes the case before Agrippa in private. And he both tells the truth and he lies. Or tells untruths, let us say it that way. The Jewish leaders had sought his death, Paul that is, verse 24, and Festus had not found him guilty of any capital offense, verse 25a. Paul made his appeal to the emperor. Those were all true. The untruths were, I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. That's a lie. We saw that in 25 verses 5 through 8 and 26 verse 8, there were very definite specific charges against the Apostle Paul. One of the charges was difficult for a Gentile to assess the charge of being unfaithful to the law of the Jews. That's why Festus wanted Agrippa there. He wanted to help him out. He didn't know anything about the law of the Jews or leading a sect, but the other two were incredibly concrete and uh, visceral um, and non-theological, namely that Paul brought a Gentile to the temple, which we know he did not, and he had created civil disturbances. But both times Festus describes the charges to Agrippa, he speaks as if the whole substance is a theological dispute that he could not understand. He says, I was a loss as to how to investigate such matters. So he's weaseling his way, attempting to get his way out. He ends up blaming everyone. So how does Festus's spin reveal that Paul is a problem for Festus? And why is Agrippa a help for him? Paul is a problem for Festus for two reasons. Festus has two problems. One that's really obvious and one that is less obvious. The obvious problem, the one he mentions, is he does not know how to discern such matters. He seems to realize that the Jewish leaders have lodged civil charges as mere excuses to get at Paul for what they had considered his real tra transgression, the preaching of Jesus resurrected. Let me tell you something. There is nothing more offensive to religious people. I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about religious people than the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is incredibly offensive. And why is it so offensive? Because the cross declares beyond all dispute certain truths about us. We cannot save ourselves. We are not good people trying to be better. We are sinners. And this is the length God had to go to save sinners like us is through the substitutionary work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and that His Son went to the cross. And what the cross is, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you've never been offended by the gospel and the cross, you don't understand it yet. The cross says we are so broken, so unable to fix ourselves, so far from being able even of our own will and desire to come to the Lord that God had to demonstrate His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the resurrection gloriously stamped God's seal of paid in full for our sins and that the righteous life of Christ lived for us has been accepted. 
And so it takes away all control from us in the matter of salvation and leaves us broken and humble before our face. The cross is insulting to people who are trying to be righteous and good by their own resources and power. It is incredibly insulting. And so that's why the Jews were so upset about it. They didn't like the idea of uh, the resurrection. And of course the Sadducees didn't believe in it at all. And that's why they are said, you see. Festus rightly discerns that the theological issue is the real issue. And his curiosity is aroused by that. Yet he knows he's completely out of his depth on this manner and area. He does not even know what points of conflict are and what merits and weaknesses are of each position. The less obvious problem is indicated by the fact that Festus needs to send along to Rome some statement of charges. Otherwise, he's in trouble with Rome, in this case, Nero, who's somebody you don't want to be in trouble with. And so he's under pressure. He's stressed out. The civil charges before the governor of violating temple rules and creating riots simply were not substantiated in any way by Paul's accusers. Nobody showed up to accuse him of that. There's no evidence that Paul had in any way ever defiled the temple or had instigated riots. And when charges come without any evidence at all, a judge is supposed to dismiss the charges, clear the defendant, not pass the case on to have it go to trial. The reason Paul appealed his case to Rome was because Festus did not have the courage to declare Paul innocent and let him go. Festus was afraid to alienate the Jewish leaders and sending Paul to Rome was a convenient way out for him. But now he had to explain why he thought the charges against Paul had enough merit that he could not dismiss them. But of course, this leaves him completely at a loss. Now, there sits Agrippa. And why is Agrippa a help for Festus? Agrippa had a reputation of being an authority on Jewish religion. And Festus decided that he was the man that could help him frame the report which he had to send to Rome regarding Paul's appeal. Festus hoped that Agrippa could listen to Paul and help him discover what about Paul was so disruptive of the peace. Why is it everywhere this guy goes, people are after him? Probably Festus hoped that Agrippa could provide some insight about why this case was worthy of a trial. Festus may have reasoned this man must be doing something terribly bad or wrong to provoke such furious opposition. He hoped Agrippa would show him exactly what that was. But the second thing we see here is what a tremendous opportunity to proclaim the gospel as we look at the next section of the text uh, where they gather together uh, for this... Uh, unprecedented event, this public, pompous celebration. It's very interesting. Uh, Luke sort of, at this point, reruns the trial in slow motion. Even though we've heard make Paul make this case twice already, 
In, in this, because the imbalance in the recording of the life of Christ in the gospel, spending a third of the gospel on the final week of Jesus' life, this is what Acts is essentially about, providing Paul with a statement as to his innocence when he eventually gets to Rome and stands trial before Caesar. But there's also a more immediate reason, one that affects us as we read the story today. When we think of this trial of the apostle, the first and most obvious demeanor noted uh, to note about Paul's demeanor is his courage. He is extremely in the worst intimidating circumstances. There's only one description of the apostle Paul. I'm talking about when he decides to bring Paul out before this event uh, in which Festus has called together this drama, and it's full of pomp and circumstance. I was telling Pam last night, the Greek word for pomp is the word fantasia, from which we get the word what? Fantasy. This whole pomp and circumstance of Rome and all the military tribune and all the people of the city and the Gentile merchants, this was a huge crowd being called together to hear Paul testify. What a glorious opportunity for the gospel because Paul had done well reaching, let's say, the working class and the poor people, but had never had an occasion to stand before the powers that be and proclaim his gospel. But he doesn't do it in strength. He does it in weakness and in chains. Listen to this description that someone wrote, uh, a guy by the name of Thecla, uh, describes Paul as a man short in stature, with a bald head, bold legs, in good condition, eyebrows that met, so Paul was a unibrow, I guess, fairly large nose, and full of grace. At times he seemed human, and at other times he looked like an angel. Such a description really contrasted this moment with the pomp and circumstance with which Herod entered. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and prominent men in the city. Entertaining royalty is always a visually splendid affair and we know the Romans loved ceremony. The sight of Agrippa and his royal robes accompanied Bernice and her finery as well as apparelled civil officials must have been quite a spectacle in Agrippa's kingdom and it was but he made up for it by all the visual theatrical, theatrics and pageantry. Then by way of contrast, there is the diminutive prisoner in chains. Let's think a little bit more about Agrippa's sister, Bernice. Let me just give you some information about her. She was married at age 11 or 12. She remarried at 13 to her uncle. Thereafter, she lived, according to some writer, Roman writers in the, of the time, in, in, a, in an incestuous relationship with the man who's now sitting beside her, Agrippa. Later, she became the mistress of the Emperor Titus, the former general who sacked Jerusalem, and some writers suggest also of his father. 
In the wake of the scandal that ensued, the emperor's relationship with a Jewish woman, Titus abandoned her, and she finally left Rome brokenhearted. That's who's sitting there when Paul is preaching the gospel, and what a grand opportunity. I feel compassion for someone like Agrippa. I'm sure she was abused early and often, and her life was a mess. But Bernice was sitting there listening for the first time ever to the saving purposes of God in Jesus Christ. And so there she sits. But what a tremendous opportunity for the gospel. First of all, uh, the chief captains and the principal men of the city were assembled to hear Paul. It was a social, political occasion. It was a way for the elite of the imperial capital to maintain cordial relations with the head of the nation. That is why there was great pomp. But what an opening for the gospel here in Caesarea, the royal capital in this part of the world, and all the leaders of the city are assembled to hear Paul's testimony and message. Imagine any major city in the United States or the world having all the leading business and political leaders assembling to hear a preacher of the gospel. It hasn't happened, if ever, in centuries. The strategic nature of the moment is better appreciated when we remember that up until this point, the spread of Christianity had been working among the working class and the poor. In a highly stratified society, it's very difficult for lower classes to share faith with people of the upper classes. They did not have access. Thus, an opportunity like this is worth its weight in gold. Second, this is a dramatic opportunity for the gospel because here we see a face-to-face -face confrontation with the leaders of two completely opposed spiritual kingdoms. The Herods were the powerful royal family who, though professing the biblical faith, had lived lives of nothing but violence and corruption for generations, mimicking the ways of the ruling classes of the world. Herod the Great had slaughtered many in an effort to kill Jesus. His son, Herod Antipas, had executed John the Baptist. His grandson, Herod Agrippa, had killed the Apostle James. Now Paul has the opportunity to clearly present the gospel with this family he had been opposing for generations. The confrontation could not be more dramatic. But consider this with me for a moment. How many things God had to work together to create the opportunity, that is, this opportunity for witness to Felix, Festus, Agrippa, and later to the imperial court itself. It was the result of a complex, interrelated series of events that have been chronicled for us in Acts since chapter 21. They include least these. Just listen. Paul sought to appease Jewish Christians by doing rites of purification in chapter 21. If he hadn't agreed to this, he would have not gone publicly to the temple. Some Jews from Asia who recognized Paul happened to be in the temple the day Paul went, and they started a riot. The news of the riot happened to reach the Roman garrison just in the nick of time to save Paul's life. The news of an assassination plot happened to reach the ears of Paul's nephew, saving him again from death. 
Yet, if it were not for the assassin's plot, Paul would never have been taken to the royal captain, uh, uh, capital. Claudius Lysias would probably have found Paul innocent of the charges and let him go. The Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, was a fair and just man who thought it worth great effort to save Paul and get him a fair trial. So he sends him to, Caesar, uh, to Caesarea. Felix was unscrupulous and unjust and simply left Paul languishing in captivity for two years. Festus found himself in a political bind over Paul, caught between political pressure from the Jews and the rules of Roman justice. Agrippin, Agrippa just happened to come to the capital for a visit. Behind all of that is the secret, mighty, powerful hand of God guiding his servant. It's remarkable. If Claudius Lysias had been unjust and Felix had been just, none of this would have happened. It was by a very intricate web of interconnected events that Paul is now in a position to proclaim the gospel in a series of socially lofty arenas that the Christian faith had barely touched. How many of the factors in Paul's life were bad things? And how can that help us in our understanding of a verse like Romans 8, 28? Let me refresh your memory if you don't have it memorized. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That doesn't say that God causes all good things to happen to us. It says God takes whatever happens to us, good or evil, and works them together according to his purpose. How many of these things that happened to Paul were bad? Clearly, most of the stuff that happened to him was bad. The chain of events were very bad. Some of you may feel like you're sitting in Paul's company today. First, many of the events turned out for such good were bad in the sense that they were a result of evil deeds. The hostile tourists from Asia, the assassin, assassins, the dagger men, the corruption of Felix, the cowardice of Festus, all were used by God to further his purposes. As did God use the wickedness of those who betrayed and killed Jesus. Second, many of the events were bad in the sense that they were extremely painful and traumatic for Paul. He was beaten within an inch of his life. He was continually in danger. He had to continually listen to the most vicious and unfair accusations and attacks. And he had to stifle his extremely driven and active spirit in order to accept years of imprisonment. Yet these were all small calls for the much larger reward of bearing witness where he otherwise could not. Well, you're sitting there and you're saying, well, good for Paul. <laughs> if you're cynical like me, you might say that. Some of you are better than me and you're nicer, but I'd say, well, that's great for Paul. But what about me? Because that's what the whole world is about, isn't it about me? Well, I don't mean that facetiously because it does have reference to you. First, it means that we need to look at both our own moral failures and those of the people around us, those who are even against us. And the Bible tells us that God never causes or tempts us to sin. Yet we also see, as in the case of Judas, 
that all sins are woven into a pattern by God's plan that is redemptive. It furthers his purposes and works out for our good. One example of that is Jacob, one of the big four in the book of Genesis. Jacob, as you know, was a con man. His name itself means one who grabs heels in order to trip people up, and he lived down to that name. Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a true con man. And yet, he deceived his father, cheated his brother, Esau, and his sin dogged him all of his life with severe consequences. But if he had not sinned, he would have not found his great love, Rachel, nor carried on the messianic line. Can we say that his sin was fortunate? Of course not. It had terrible results in his life, and he regretted it all of his life. Can we say that sin derailed God's purpose and plan for him? No. God clearly worked, even in his moral failure, into the right plan, that is plan A. I remember when I was a young Christian, there used to be a teaching out about the will of God, that the will of God is like this dot, and you have to hit it right on it. Or not, you have to settle for God's second best. Well, I tell you what, I never hit that dot. I never even got close to hitting that dot. Most of the time, I didn't want to hit that dot. But God has certainly worked out His will in my life more through my failures than through my successes. I will tell you that right away. Much more through my failures than any of my successes. But here's what I want you to think about. Perhaps you're here this morning, and as Josh prayed, perhaps... When you think of Mother's Day, that's not a happy thought for you. Or you think of Father's Day, that's not a happy thought. Uh, perhaps you were born in a family in which you were abused in any number of ways. You didn't have any control over that. You didn't choose who your parents were. And yet you grew up in a family that was a dysfunctional, terrible, horrible family. Perhaps you have uh, had parents that were substance abusers or whatever. But as you, as you look at your life and you look around at other people and you compare yourself to other people and you say, well, he has a great mom and dad who love him, but I never had that. How can that be good, Pastor? I don't know, but God does. How can God take that evil, that horrible thing that happened to you? You see, you don't have to live the rest of your life as a victim if bad things happen to you. Horrible, evil, terrible stuff happens to lots of people, almost everyone. And yet God can take that horrible evil. He's shown that through His Son, suspended between heaven and on earth on a cross, bearing our sin through the treachery of men. And God Himself put Him there. But there's stuff that happens to you, and it's not all good. You know, one of the favorite expressions of people that I run into these days are, How you doing? It's all good. No, it's not. It is rarely all good good. It's not. There are horrible things. I can't even think of things that may have happened to you. Perhaps you've been burglarized or robbed or threatened or uh, other things that happened to you that you were in no way uh, in fault of. You are a true victim, but you don't have to live your life as a victim thinking I'll never be any better because there's always hope. And why is there hope? Because God takes it all. And works it out for good. And he did it for Paul. 
And it means that we need to look at painful and difficult occurrences and circumstances and see them through the lens of a verse like Romans 8.28. This does not mean on the one hand that God is ever the author of evil. He is not. So when terrible things happen, we know that Jesus weeps with us. I find it remarkable that when he came to Lazarus' tomb, he met uh, Martha on the way. And Martha came up with a theological answer to a question, and Jesus answered it for her, and she was fine. Mary comes up to him, and what does he do? She weeps, he weeps. And then he goes to the grave of Lazarus, and he snorts and almost stomps his foot in anger. Why? Because Jesus weeps. He feels, he knows, he understands. He's lived in a human body. He had a human nature. As much as we have a human nature, sin accepted. But he knows, he weeps. We grieve over and fight evil and suffering in the world as Jesus did. Jesus, though he was God, was angry at suffering and yet not angry at himself. We're not to be simply passive toward evil, of course not, and trouble in the world with the vague notion that this is somehow God's will. Notice how Paul does things all through these texts. He definitely works to save himself from death, and he vigorously contests false accusations and injustice. But on the other hand, we're never to be petrified with fear or living in a swamp of bitterness. I resent my life. I resent how I was treated. I resent this person and how they failed me in so many ways. You know, you know, I know you've heard this. Bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping somebody else will get sick. And so many of us, we don't even know how angry we are and how bitter we are because things haven't worked out to the visual in our head. You know, we all want to write the own, our script for our own movie, and at best it's a B movie and nobody comes to see it, but we all want to do it. But we don't get to do that. God does that. And he can take all of the brokenness and all of the horror and all of the suffering and all of, of, of the evil that touches our lives and weave it together to accomplish something beautiful that would have never occurred before. That is the wisdom of God. We don't have that kind of wisdom. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And His ways are higher. They transcend our ability to comprehend and grasp and hold on to. But we can hold on to Romans 8, 28 and say, Yes, Lord, I have hope. Not because I can figure it out because I can't. But because God is God. And God makes promises and He honors His promises. And He will get us right where He wants us right on time. I remember confessing to one of our elders one time, he happens to be sitting right here on the front row, so he triggered my memory. I was in a spot in my life, I was in a struggle, and so he went out to lunch, and I just poured out my soul to him, and I told him more than he wanted to know. He just sat there the whole time, never said anything, just looked at me, and I just poured out, because I knew he knew problems, because he'd had a bunch, hadn't you? So I poured out my soul, and then I said, well, guy, what do you say? He says, God's got you right where he wants you. I hate that. I hate that. 
But it's true. God's got you right where he wants you. And that's the truth. True with some of you. Even this moment, even now, all of us are right where he wants us. You know, people, I, I find this with Christians a lot. And uh, it's one of my pet peeves, so I'll dial it down a little bit. When, when people move to Las Vegas and they're Christians and I meet up with them and they either come to church or I have a conversation with them, they always go, I just don't know about living here. I don't know if I could live in a city like this. It's so wicked and it's so corrupt. And when I got off the plane, I could just feel the presence of evil and it was just overwhelming. And all of that may be true. But God has got you right where he wants you. You're here because God sent you here. He put you here. Why? Who knows what he will do in your life to minister to other people. You're exactly where he wants you to be. And there's nothing in this city happening today that ain't already in your heart. It's there. It's called original sin. And it ain't very original. But it's real. So let's get off our high horse and realize that we, like Jonah, don't want to go to Nineveh. Want to do a 180 and go somewhere else. God got him to Nineveh, didn't he? I could tell you more stories, but that's enough. That's enough. That's what Luke is doing in this narrative to speak to us. Next week, we'll look at Paul's incredible sermon before this gathered uh, bevy of uh, luminaries and uh, high society as he preaches the gospel to these people in a very convincing way. But for you today, what I'm hoping for you today to hear out of this message is God will get his work done. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You can count on that. You can book it. You can put it in the bank. It's done. It's over. You just got to live through it and die through it. But it will be done. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us. We know that we all struggle. We all wonder why. A question you never answer anywhere in the scriptures. Because it's too complicated. We couldn't get it if you attempted to explain it. We're so limited. We're the finite trying to grasp the infinite. And we're sinners trying to grasp the holy. But we know that you have great compassion on us. And that your love for us overcomes our stupidity, our madness, our insanity of doing some of the things we do. And yet, you can restore the years the locusts have eaten away. You can give us beauty for ashes. And you do take what seems to be unconnected, random just stuff that we can't we scratch our heads and wonder over and make us beautiful and we give you praise and thanks for that and we pray your blessings upon us as we continue to worship you in Jesus name amen